Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts, Marcy and Jenny, are talking and drinking their way through Newberry award-winning books, past and present. Hello, and welcome back to the Newberry Tart Podcast. I'm Jenny. And I'm Marcy. And with us today to discuss It's Like This Cat by Emily Neville um, is Erin Didi. Hello, Erin. Hello. So Erin, what interests you about children's books? Um, I've always been interested in children's books. I grew up in a house of readers, and uh, my mom is a children's book author. So books and reading and children's books were always really prevalent. I've worked in the publishing industry in various capacities and still do um, doing book reviews. So it's just it's something I've always loved. I've always kind of loved the sort of magic of children's books. Well, and when we um, we talked about having guests, I have been to some of the book clubs that you run in, and I thought Erin would be a good guest. <laughs> so we're glad to have I you. I do. My book club's on like six years now we've been going, which I feel like is a pretty good run for That's a book club, great. and we read young adult books. So. And they actually discuss the book. We do. No. <laughs> for like a whole hour. It's a, it devolves eventually, but. Unusual. <laughs> yeah. We're called YA for Wine Lovers. We meet at Parker's on Ponce first Monday. So, Indicator, Georgia. Yes, sorry. <laughs> Indicator, Georgia. Yeah. Uh, like we said, we are reading It's Like This Cat by Emily Neville, which is the Newbery Award winner in 1964. And we have a short synopsis here from the ALA's review of Newbery and Caldecott winning books. When his father suggests that owning a dog might be good for him, 14-year-old Dave defiantly goes to Aunt Kate the Catwoman and adopts a stray. The cat ends up leading him to new people and adventures all over Manhattan, and even to an appreciation for his parents. Um, I feel like that's a pretty uh, pretty short description of a long book. <laughs> <that> long. <laughs> it felt long. Um, <laughs> well, I think that, uh, I really think Dave is a mix of uh, Holden Caulfield and... Um, Who's the main guy in uh, American Psycho? Bate Bateman. Bate, Bateman. Patrick, Patrick Bateman. Bateman. <laughs> so I was. I just felt like I was watch. Like I was reading a sociopath about a sociopath. Really? Oh yeah. Like, isn't that like all thirteen-year-old boys though? I guess. I, mean, I, I guess. I just. I. I don't know. I don't know. But um, let's talk about the strong points of the book. Well, no, I want to know what you found so off-putting. I'm like, ooh, interesting. <laughs> um, okay, let's start with the food that's described. It's disgusting. He put it in his mouth, and he <laughs> talked about it. He's He talks about Aunt Kate being really into eating bowls of cottage cheese. Okay, He fine. couldn't be rude, though, and, like, not eat it? Yes, but he then starts doing it himself. And it's not just like a little side bowl. That's the thing. It's not like it's a little side bowl. Like I'm eating some cottage cheese. It's like a huge <laughs> bowl. Like it's ice cream. That's the way it's described. Well, I know, but like they even talk about how he says, no, thank you. But she's like, just eat it. And he's like, it doesn't have much taste. So he just eats it. I think he's being nice. No, he is being nice and that's fine. But he continues it at home. And that's the disgusting part. And he makes his mom start doing it. And his mom eats it with mayonnaise on top of it. And that's disgusting. It's so also gross. <laughs> It's, you can't hold him responsible for his mother's choices. I'm not holding him responsible. I'm just saying the food is disgusting. Yeah. That's the number the one thing. Really That's the number one thing. Like, even even when they go to diners and you would think that they would be eating some really good, like, greasy spoon stuff, it just sounds gross. And then there's the spaghetti sandwich, that, which yeah. I can't. <laughs> but, like, cold spaghetti's delicious, for one. And two, I feel like that's one of those weird things you do when you're a kid, when you're like, I'm going out and I just got to throw something in my bag 
let me make a spaghetti sandwich. Like, I don't know. I could have seen myself doing something weird like that. I could see like an 11-year-old doing that, but when you're 14, like in this story, I think it's – I understand liking weird things. I like weird things too because like I'll make I'll make grilled cheese sandwiches and I grill mm-hmm. them like with pickles inside them, which I think most people find gross. Mm-hmm. That sounds really good. <laughs> it is so good. <laughs> but assu- he just what got me about that was he totally just assumed that his friend would like it too. He's like, "Yeah, of course, spaghetti sandwich. That's what we're going to have." And he and his friend was like, "All right." But like, weren't you in grade school or elementary school and there was always like the kid that would like mix up something weird and go, I dare you to try it. Like he's that kid. I didn't feel it was that concerted of an effort. (laughs) I felt like it was just like, this is the food we eat in my horrible house after he talked about how much he hates his parents essentially. And, um, and now I'm going to make you eat a spaghetti sandwich in the middle of the park when it's cold. I'm going to make you a spaghetti sandwich this week. (laughs) (laughs) I thought about doing that for a snack, but I figured we all may not like that. He just really loves carbs. I mean, it's like pasta on bread. But like here, okay, spaghetti sandwich argument. Haven't you get like French buttery bread with your spaghetti and then you put the spaghetti on it and then you eat it? That's That's like open face spaghetti sandwich. I feel like this is sort of like Wonder Bread era. But there wasn't mayonnaise on it. That you know of. <laughs> <laughs> One of the grossest things I ever had, have had. Um, in high school, we used to go to this like pizza buffet on Fridays after we got out of school, and um, they would show horror movies on the big screen. And so we would just eat a bunch of pizza and watch like Friday the 13th Part 2 and 5 and like all the horrible things. Um and one time I went up and I was like, oh, this is a new kind. And I like got a piece and started eating it. And then I realized that it wasn't like mozzarella on top, like like yeah. ricotta on top, the white cheese. It wasn't white cheese. It was mayonnaise. It was a BLT. Oh. It was a BLT pizza. Oh. A BLT pizza. Oh. Yeah. Mayonnaise, when you don't expect it, it is, is not okay. And I like mayonnaise, but yeah. surprise mayonnaise? No. Surprise mayonnaise. So we don't know that there was mayonnaise on there, but I think Dave is just the kind of <laughs> sneaky bastard that might put mayonnaise on a spaghetti sandwich. <laughs> And then make Tom eat it while he watches him. No, I think what happened is they left the house. The mom made one and hers had mayonnaise on it. (laughs) Poor mom. Now, I guess the question is, do spaghetti sandwiches make you a sociopath? No. No. No, they don't. I just wanted to talk, really talk about how disgusting the food was. It was very striking. Is the food like a product of the era? Or is it just, like, boy weirdness? I think boy weirdness. I mean, everybody has, like, the weird childhood food. I used to eat, um, you know, the instant vanilla pudding Mm -hmm. mix? My brother would eat anything that I made ever, so I had to resort to making it look gross but not taste gross. So, like, I would dye it blue or I would, like, stir (laughs) odd things near it. And, like... Oh, that's not that gross. I was was girding myself. I was like, she did something gross with that. I I literally, like, I had to disguise my food because otherwise I would eat it. I mean... Maybe the maybe the bowl of cottage cheese with mayonnaise, maybe the spaghetti sandwich and the various other items are of this era. Um, but I also feel because it would have been like it was pre World War Two, right? But it was post like the Great Depression. Yeah. So I understand like they're making do still in a lot of ways. Like they're just kind of like we won't throw anything out. We're going to make everything useful. So I'm now eating mayonnaise on cottage cheese. Um, but I I just, I don't, for it being like historical fiction, I don't necessarily think that it 
it gives a feel for like, it doesn't make it feel like it's a special thing from that time and that place. It just feels like an odd thing. But that's just, and that's me. But they kept drinking colas. That's true. <laughs> I mean, like anytime anything happened, let's go get a Coke. <laughs> I can relate to that. <laughs> It's like such a kid thing to do though. Like you're like free on your bicycle, like with your friends at the beach, get a Coke. I think that part is a product of the era too. Like go get a cold Coke is just like an activity. Mm -hmm. I did appreciate that about the book. Like I feel like the freedom that they had in the city to just be like, yeah, go. I will see you at sundown. is something that just doesn't happen now. Um, And it really allowed a lot of the city to open up and sort of allowed the city to be its own character in the book, essentially, and show you all these different neighborhoods and things like that. I mean, as a mom, part of me was, like, terrified. I was like, something horrible is going to happen to them. But this is a very low-action book, so nothing horrible happened to them ever. <laughs> I know. Even when he makes friends and, like, he's making friends with people five years older than him and they're – No one recently, thought that was weird. Recently arrested. And- well, he meets he meets Tom because Tom is doing a heist in the, the basement of the of the his building – Yes, but he he lets out Cat, who has been trapped in the basement, and the only thought this kid has is, man, I wish I could keep a burglar on hand all the time to get him out of, like, places that he gets stuck. Like, there's never any negative association. Yeah. Which is nice in a way, but you have to wonder. Burglar with a heart of gold. I think the whole thing with Tom is a little, um, it's a little meat cute, and I, for one, felt dissatisfied with the way that it ended up playing out. Well, yeah, the entire ending I felt was very abrupt and odd and not finished. Absolutely. I I was reading it and I realized that I had so few pages left. I was like, wait, this is – it felt like nothing was resolved. Yes. But there wasn't necessarily a huge conflict that I was waiting for answers for. I mean, it was clearly – coming of age and you see him mature some over the years, you see his relationship with his parents evolve some, but you have all these sort of people on the periphery that you don't really find out what happens and why was Tom even there? And nothing gets tied together. You know, you're right. There's no like resolution per se at all. Like even the thing that happens at the end of the book is not important really. Well, and that's how this book reminds me of Catcher in the Rye. Right, you have a young man who's who's exploring the city. It's definitely that part of the the book. There's his version of angst, which is basically he doesn't care about anything or anybody except for Cat. Mm-hmm. He cares about Aunt Kate, but he's not very nice to her. He doesn't seem to like his parents very much. He likes Tom, who, I mean, I think if it was an a, an adult book of that era, they would have been together. I think he liked Tom because Tom was like older and mysterious and dangerous in mm-hmm. a way. Like it's an idealized mm-hmm. person. He also like goes to great lengths to find Tom. And that to me is like such a romantic quest type of type of thing. You know? Maybe he was in love with Tom and we just, it's never explicitly stated. And I really stated. wish that it had been. Tom did like just keep showing up at his house randomly. Yeah. So are we saying that Tom's fiance is his beard? <laughs> no, I think Tom could be bi. I just, um, I just feel I felt like there was just a subtext there, and maybe because of the era, that couldn't really be explored. I could be just imposing some stuff in there too, but I, d- I did feel like there was a possible subtext, and he was so annoyed by his other friends like finding a girlfriend, and then he like strung Mary along in that weird way. I was like. He may not be entirely into girls, and that's fine. But this book is about like an all-American kid in New York, New York City. So it's like 
he's got to have a girl. That's what it felt like. I feel like if that subtext is there, it was unintentional by the author. Because just just looking at what little we know about her, she's a mom who lived in New York and had five kids. And I think anybody writing about a 14-year-old when they have five kids of their own and it's about the same city in the same time, like I think putting that in intentionally is just probably not at all what she would do. We're also looking at it with the eyes of 2019, Mm -hmm. um, which is going to look for more of that stuff, I think. Um, but I think he liked, I mean, he liked Mary because he was very, he was worried when he had the flu and he couldn't show up and she was going to be in the rain and why didn't he ask for her number? And then there was one little part when um, she called him from Macy's and he's like, oh, you know, you must have been worried and there were all these Mitchells that and you didn't know if you had the right one. And she's like, oh, I looked it up weeks ago. And there was something in there about how he liked that or it made him wonder or whatever that he was pleased essentially that she had been thinking about him Mm -hmm. and looked up his number several weeks before. But I also felt like this was such an idealized version of like a teen boy in some ways. Of course. So, because it was written by a a mom, mom, a woman and with five kids in, in New York city in the 1960s. And so it was like this idea of like, you know, this guy, this kid is actually being accountable and actually thinking through these things. and Well, true, but at the same time, like, he's an only child and his parents are more, uh, not academic, but just they seem like they think, <laughs> even if he doesn't like them very much. And it was a relief, actually, to be reading a book in which the character is not a goody two-shoes, but you're right, he's accountable and responsible, and it's nice. Like, there's the peer pressure thing, and you're kind of thinking, oh, here comes that plot device where – he gets pressured by like his best friend he doesn't really like and the girls that he wants to impress and he's going to do something stupid and get in trouble and that's the that's the conflict but that doesn't happen and it's it's actually nice because it's so boring to read that same thing over and over again i thought this was boring <laughs> <laughs> i was thinking it kind of nothing Sorry. happened like yeah. it was a quiet book Except um the very detailed pages about how cat had to get um Oh, yeah, neutered. Neutered. Altered. And it became, I, I think that this is not just 2019 eyeballs on this book. It became very, like, apparent that Dave was concerned about his own manhood in conjunction with Kat's manhood. He was really concerned about how manly he would be after. Yeah, he told Kat to still be tough, please. <laughs> there was, like, a very weird masculine thing happening i don't know the right words for it but just this his dad's idea of like you got to have a dog and you got to be rough and tumble it was a it was a very traditional perspective of masculinity and in some ways he bucks against it Mm -hmm. um which was interesting but you do have these scenes like with cat where it is very clear that you know he's very worried about cat's masculinity in a sense and and therefore his own that part i think is an adult writing as a child because i don't know any kid ever that i'm aware of who's been upset about their cat getting fixed i just but if they're worried about themselves i don't know a single male child or adult that isn't fascinated with their parts so (laughs) (laughs) to put it delicately (laughs) so that i mean yeah so that that has he he fixates on that in the book the narrative the narrator fixates on that the narrative fixates on that for several pages and that's i think the a little bit of a dive into this idea of hyper masculine masculinity that the dad has Mm -hmm. 
Um, but the dad isn't hypermasculine. That's the no, funny and he thing. softens as the book goes on. Um, you know, as far as how he interacts with him, and they have—he even says at the end of the book how they try to not fight so much and try and build a better relationship, and how he sort of starts to learn to appreciate that his dad is there because Tom's dad isn't. Um, so you see that relationship start to mature a little bit. I feel like his dad was like a dad of that era, you know, like a pull yourself up by your bootstraps, be tough, whatever. But he found, I found that there were times that he could be very kind. Also Dave mellowed in certain ways. Like I think he started out with his dad's ideas and like, for instance, when he's out with Mary and she won't let him pay for anything, he gets annoyed, like specifically says that he's annoyed that he doesn't automatically pay for her. But then later on, he's saying that he likes that she's independent and she goes ahead and pays for herself. And she's gracious about it when he does pay. But, like, he, I feel like his attitudes that he gets from his dad just mellow also. Yeah, through his own experiences, I think. I think that he likes Mary. And she's an example of someone who, I mean, she's his age and she has a lot of the freedoms and independence that he has. And so I think him starting to realize that was a step for him. I mean, again, they're like, 13, 14 years old. So, and that's, I think, around the time that the idea of the modern teenager was coming to be as well. So, this idea, the, them having that independence and then having their own New York in a way mm-hmm. was really in line with um, what was happening in the culture. But one character I really, really loved was Mary's mom. <laughs> she <laughs> cracked me up. Yeah, I thought for being in the book so little, I actually had an idea of what she looked like, had a, had an idea of who she was, and it was she was really interesting and out of the ordinary in the world of the book. Well, I think she was presented, though, in a way that she was intended to be a negative character. You know, she was supposed to be sort of the, the opposite of Davy's mom, who, while is sick with her asthma, her fighting-induced asthma, which didn't really make any sense. <laughs> um, but she was like home and she was present and cooked dinner and did all this stuff. And so Mary's mom was supposed to be the opposite of this and was supposed to be the sort of negative, I think, character in a lot of ways. But she ended up being, like you said, one of the most fully formed and in some ways more impactful. And that must be uh, more of a modern, like a modern take on her, right? So, because I'm looking at her and I'm like, she's an interesting lady. <laughs> you, know? I think, you know, the author tried very hard to make her not great. Like, I mean, they they mentioned multiple times that Mary is sad because of things her mom does or says or doesn't do or doesn't say. But I think that a lot of the ways that Mary is sad is is the absence of her mother mm-hmm. and like the intellectual pressure her mother puts on her. In a way, and so I don't know. I had I had mixed feelings about her myself. So as an individual, I'm like, yeah, of course you want to be able to do your own things and have your own space. Your kid's old enough. And then as a mom, I'm like, oh my god, everyone's just letting their kids ride their bikes around New York City. This is very dangerous. So <laughs> so I had kind of like mixed feelings about it. But I also, I mean, I remember being that age and like taking my bike and like coming back when the streetlights come on. Um, so I could relate in some ways to that. Yeah. But I also remember taking the subway to Coney Island as an adult. Yeah. (laughs) I would be scared to do that by myself. I think that when it's such a natural part of your day to day, you know, it's familiar. It is your backyard. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but I don't know. I had a Cuban mom who like letting me ride my bike, like to the pizza place was a very big step for her. So, (laughs) um, that brings me to a point that I think we need to discuss. The title is called, it's like this cat. Okay. So cat becomes ostensibly Davy's confidant Mm -hmm. and his best friend. I saw a cat less as that and more of just a little, like a prop that would kind of come in and out. Also, oh, on another note, going back to uh, Davy's mom's asthma, that's what a sociopath does. A sociopath knows that their mom has asthma and then brings a cat in the house. <laughs> One in the sociopath column. <laughs> Check. <laughs> but, um, yeah, what what are your thoughts on the idea of Cat as a character? I mean, not, you know, maybe a mirror for for Davy, maybe just something that's there. It like moves along the different plots, the different vignettes. Cat was just a device to yeah, me. I, I don't know. I felt like Cat was more of like a what the same function of it as a journal or something that you could bring along and talk to and and bounce your ideas and feelings off of, but not really a character in its own right. No, I mean, he just, he really was just a cat. I mean, that's why he named him Cat. Um, I think the author used him to create difficult situations, you know, when he jumps out of the car and when he brings him to the beach. Like, the author used Cat to create certain situations, but I didn't feel like he warranted being the title of the book. (laughs) No, he's more of a a theme than a (laughs) functioning... I feel like it's like this Davey would have been, or Dave would have been a better title for this book. Because it is, I mean, on on some levels, it's about him accepting who he is. And even though I didn't like the book, it is about him accepting who he is and kind of his circumstances (coughs) and getting used to the people around him and the places around him and seeing how, I guess, he's going to be an adult. You know, with all of that, though, I have to say, I actually enjoyed reading this book. Like, it's very readable. It is very readable. But I didn't like it. <laughs> it was it was a quick read for me. Like it, it, I wasn't slogged down by it. I appreciated it for what it was. It's not my usual genre and stuff. I really prefer more like fantasy and science fiction. Yeah. And so when I when I go to more historical or realistic or whatever, um, I sometimes get bogged down a little bit. I was thinking as I read it that if they just updated the language in this, it would actually update in the language and the ending. This would actually make a really decent book for kids now. They'd have to give it an ending first. Yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like it, I mean, I think we talked about this earlier, like it, it just ended. Right. Like it didn't feel like there was a resolution to anything. It feel It felt like just the end of any other chapter. Like you could have ended it anywhere. It's hard when there's no actual problem to solve. But I feel like since it is a coming of age story, like the point of this is that Davey's this young kid and he's trying to start to find his sea legs essentially as a young adult, that there could have been some sort of milestone that he reached like to go into the new year. You know, maybe it ends with like start, you know, some big accomplishment at school or he and Mary have a first kiss and it like fades to black or or whatever. Something. Some sort of major adolescent milestone that lets you know, okay, like he's moving fully on into this next phase of... You know what they should have done? They should have had Cat die and then he deals with it. Oh, uh, yeah. He wouldn't have dealt with it. He would have taken a spaghetti sandwich, gone to <laughs> Central Park, and then just sat there for a couple of hours until and tried to find Tom. Until he gets kidnapped. I don't know. He was he was pretty sad when, um, you know, the kitten's neck got snapped. 
Oh my god, that. Oh. Oh. And he did say in that scene, first of all, that was like very shocking to me, surprisingly, in this book. Like, I didn't expect it that the one guy, A, the one guy steps on the cat, and two, the cat lover then just snaps the baby kitten's neck and puts it in the trash. (laughs) Yeah, well, just a heads up to parents (laughs) of small children who may be thinking about letting them read this book. There's no bad language, but man, a kitten gets killed. Also, Dave is a sociopath. (laughs) (laughs) But I will say, so he can't be a total sociopath because he did get upset when the kitten died and he did kind of have this moment of, well, actually, maybe he is because he made it all about him Mm -hmm. because he was like, oh, I've never seen something die. Yes. Maybe you're right. I mean, I'm I'm not saying that everyone that's self-centered because we all are. Everyone that's self-centered is um, a sociopath. But there were moments like that of just like... Maybe he's more like a narcissist. Maybe. Maybe. Well, I don't know. I think at 14, like... Everyone's self-involved at 14. Well, most people in general are self-involved. But like I think at 14, like you see something die in front of you, you're entitled to sort of a little bit of self-reflection, even though it's not about you. I felt really bad for Aunt Kate in that moment. I mean, I know she snapped his neck, but it was already like... Well, she was saving it. And yeah. he does say that he doesn't know if he could have put the kitten out of its, its misery himself. Mm-hmm. But, but again, it's about himself. Yeah. But about he him. makes he makes <laughs> Aunt Kate sound a little bit like a robot herself because he's like, oh, she's very practical about her cats. She loves them, but she's very practical about them and how they are just cats and blah, blah, blah. But then there's this earlier moment where he's going, oh, these cats are her family. She loves them. Like. I don't think that he understands Aunt Kate so well. She's practical, but she also has too many cats. So that lets us also know that she, she a was off. he was eating bowls of cottage cheese <laughs> in a house, an apartment. You know there was cat that, like, in his cottage smelled cheese. Smelled so bad. Like smelled like concentrated cats. Yeah. And cottage cheese, because all Aunt Kate eats is fruit and cottage cheese. Like she doesn't she's eat gonna, anything else. She's gonna get she's gonna die. <laughs> At least she'll die a millionaire. (laughs) Aunt Kate's going to die and all the cats are going to like – Eat her. Yeah. They're going to eat her face. It's going to be real bad. What I didn't get is that one tiny little scene where she starts sorting the kittens as if they were ribbons by color. That's what made me worry about (laughs) it. Aunt Kate had some problems. Although what I was wondering in that minute is that whether she was sorting them to see which ones might be cats, kittens by color. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because that's when they started talking about fixing cat – and that's that's kind of the last thing I want to touch on a little bit is New York itself as a character. I mean, we talked a little bit about this. The New York of this book is so undiverse, so sanitized in a lot of ways. I wasn't around in the 19, late 1940s, early 50s. I don't know if that's actually how it was. What I've read, though, it sounds like this is not necessarily a realistic portrayal of the city. Well... What I what stuck out to me was that he always had money on him, and the kids that he was with, they always had money for the most part. Which for me, like as a kid, to just have like money all the time, like cash on me all the time, would have would have been ridiculous, you know. And all the people that he was with, they were they were all white, they're all affluent, you know. And it didn't matter if they were on Coney Island or wherever he was. Um, he was in Manhattan, I believe, but like. Everyone always had enough money for a Coke or a movie or... There never shop. seemed to be anyone who was really downtrodden. Other no. Than Aunt Kate, like, seemed to st- still be well off, right? She could afford food for her cats. Yeah, I mean, she and was... And she fed yeah. them 
I think what some chicken chicken gizzards. And she also and got an inheritance she, during the book. Yeah, but know. which was a big deal to the neighborhood, though. Yeah, um, but it didn't seem it wasn't touched on at all that any of these people. Yeah. Could be anything, but, you know, they knew where their next meal was coming from. Yeah. They, they were food secure. So he's, I mean, he's, and he's going all around the city. So at some point, I would assume he would have seen somebody who would be downtrodden or there would have been sections that he was walking through that would have been. But it's skipped over in a lot of those parts. Like at one point he's with his friend that he meets at his new high school. And they're like, they are like counting change because they're like. Oh, great. We forgot we have to tip because it's something you do when you're like a kid. You don't think about everything like that. And they end up like walking like 40 blocks, but it just like skips like, Mm -hmm. oh, we're here. Oh, we're home. And so a lot of what I think could have made this book more interesting was exploring more of their walking journeys like through the city and what that experience would have been because as, as a story about growing up and becoming a teenager, becoming an adult and all of that, you mm-hmm. take in everything around you, but we didn't get to see and we missed so much of that because it would just jump to, oh, we're home. Well, and there wasn't there wasn't any mention of Little Italy. There wasn't any mention of Chinatown. There wasn't any mention they of They go to the like, Jewish ne- neighborhood at Rosh Hashanah mm-hmm. and there the was fish any, market, but there wasn't yeah. anything that- Skid Row. I mean, there was no mention of like the stuff that we know was around during that time. But also, I don't know, to me that reflected just a little bit of normal kid mentality, like being a self-centered tween mm-hmm. or teen. Like maybe he's just talking to his friend and doesn't even like take it in doesn't the register. That that's happening because it doesn't matter to him. I mean, and that's a really privileged sociopath. Way to, <laughs> that's a really privileged way to live, but I don't think it's it necessarily inaccurate or like a failing of the book. I think it might just be the way that kids are sometimes. And again, I think also we're looking at this in 2019, where when we read books a lot of times now, like I'm actively looking for something that's going to be more diverse, that's going to be more realistic, that's going to be showing larger ranges of of people and themes. Um, this is about a well-off, you know, middle-class white kid fooling around in the summer, you know, and and that's and I think this reflects that. So I don't necessarily think the book failed. I think the book could have been better, and his growth would have made more sense having a wider range of experiences. Yeah, um, there's also I feel like sort of a category of books that's like kid growing up in nostalgic New York mm-hmm. that exists. I'll talk about that in my read alikes and re- read betters, but like it's not it's not alone in that exact same situation. Mm-hmm. Like there's a lot of that happening in other books. Definitely. Of course, if we're talking about recommending this for kids to read, there are some problematic things just because of when it was written and how it was written, like things like calling people commies <laughs> <laughs> or um, well, the commie part didn't bother me. I would say, as a kid, the 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 kitten murder, um, kitten murder. W- would be higher up on the list than than beatniks and commies. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's just some of those assumptions that are still in here that are a little bit off putting. Like when you're reading, you're like, oh, really? But yeah, but it doesn't have a lot of the more um, offensive, offensive. Yeah. language that can that could pop up in books of the era. Mm-hmm. Marcy, do you have a read-alike or read-better or both? Um, I have both. Let's see. Not even a like or better, just 
similar. <laughs> um, Marcy has our first read similar. <laughs> so we mentioned it before, but um, Catcher in the Rye is sort of like a bigger or older, grittier version of this um, with, as Jenny said, a similar lack of resolution, which is annoying. And another sociopath. That one I'll agree with. <laughs> um, and then one that I always feel is sort of like the toned down written for girls version of Catcher in the Rye, which is Camilla by Madeline Lingle. Um, another girl growing up in a similar time in a very privileged household in New York, but her family is falling apart. And it's a really good read, although it still has that same Catcher in the Rye tone to it and the same language. So if you like either that or this book, I would recommend it. Um, and then one book that I think I like much less than this book, even though we didn't really love this book, is another one that I'm sure that we'll talk about. It's uh, the 1937 Newbery um, book, Roller Skates, by Ruth Sawyer, in which a girl who's a little bit younger than this protagonist basically has the same freedoms in New York, but she's a lot more annoying. <laughs> That's and a he- great recommendation. <laughs> So it's like this, but more annoying. If you're ready to really dislike the main character and really wonder how somebody did not get kidnapped and murdered, that's the book for you. All right. <laughs> wow. No, so, I want to read it. It's a read worse. Yeah, <laughs> read worse. Read worse. That's our first one of that, too. Um, so my read-alikes, um, I have two of them. Or actually, I would say read-betters. These are read-betters. My two read-betters. Um, the first one is Tar Beach. It's by Faith Ringgold. Um, it's set in 1939 Harlem, and it actually has um, a young girl, Cassie Louise Lightfoot. Cassie floats above their apartment building and sees different things, um, parts of her New York. Okay, it was set in 1939, so it's close to the time frame of of uh, Dave and his story, and like it's it's like this cat. The art is gorgeous. A lot of it's handmade. A lot of it's quilted. Um, it's just a beautiful book. It is a picture book, but I think it's, it's for a little bit older readers, like middle grade. Um, not that younger kids can't look at it. And the other one is the night tourist by Catherine Marsh. Um, so I chose this one because it's set in New York city and it's about a, a young boy discovering kind of the secrets and discovering the city in general. Um, but this is fantasy and it's more modern day. Um, so it's the beginning, it's the first book in her, um, her Jack Purdue series. And Jack is a genius, like a kid genius, and he's in an accident. And so his dad sends him to New York for a specialized doctor visit. And when he's there, he meets, um, he meets a girl named Yuri who shows him New York's underworld. And that's where, um, dead people stay and wait until they move on. Um, so it's, a, a you know, a fantasy story as well as an exploration of New York. Erin, what about you? Um, the two that came into mind as sort of children exploring New York City um, were When You Reach Me, and it has sort of a time travel mythical element to it that I really appreciated. And it was, again, like a short kind of quick read and um, from the mixed up files of Mrs. Baisley Frankweiler, which was one of my favorites growing up. And it made me just always dream of running away to the Metropolitan Museum. And like to this day, every time I go to New York, that's like my first stop and I love it. But it does have that sort of kids on their own in the city trying to figure out kind of who they are and what their next step is. Um, But those were my two sort of Coming of age New York books. Those are such good choices. <laughs> and definitely better than this one. Yeah. <laughs> 
So today um, we're drinking something called the Coney Island iced tea. What did you guys think about the Coney Island iced tea? I really like it. I finished it. It was delicious. It was very citrusy. Like it was, it's one of those that you could have like two thinking, oh, this is really delicious and refreshing. And then you fall off your stool. (laughs) I think that's very true. I do like the fresh lemon juice in it is really good. What else is in it? There's Coke. There's Coke, there's rum, there's tequila, there's gin, and there's vodka. Oh, and orange liqueur. Yeah. And triple sec? Was that the... Yeah. Yeah, that's the orange liqueur, yeah. There was a lot of things mixed in here, and it was delicious. I, um... I didn't... I thought it was fine, especially compared to other things that we've had to drink. Um, but I think it was for... For me, it was like the book, where it was like, okay, I've consumed this. (laughs) I know what this is about. (laughs) I like it. Although I have to say the drink itself is a lot more diverse than the book was, which is, you know, not so fitting. But they are always going for Cokes in the books and there's Coke in the drink. So that works. Not only is Erin interested in children's books and review them um, and run a book club, she also is a baker. Can you tell us about that? Um, You know, after my second kid, I needed a creative outlet. And so I learned to decorate cakes and learned I was pretty good at it. So I I make them out of my home and uh, make cakes and cupcakes and smash cakes and all kinds of delicious things and whatever kind of crazy ideas people come up with. It's pretty fun. So, Do you have a website? I do. It's the sugarbakersatl.com. Um, and yeah, we make and deliver cupcakes and cakes in the Atlanta area. That is dangerous information. <laughs> and, My um, red velvet's really good. <laughs> and her, her cakes are gorgeous. I mean, they're gorgeous. Like, absolutely gorgeous. You can see our Instagram. at um, It's uh, the sugarbakersatl on Instagram. So, and you can see all of our pretty cakes. Um, thank you so much for being with us, yeah, Thank you for having me. It was super fun. Thank you so much for listening. Please rate and review us on whatever platform you found us. It helps us keep the podcast going. We have so much fun making the podcast and we appreciate everybody's support. If you would like to support us financially, you can find us on Patreon. Again, this was Newberry Tart discussing It's Like This Cat by Emily Neville. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye. Production assistance for Newberry Tart is provided by Raphael Siebenman and Liam Grove. Graphic design by Liz Mytinger. Intro and outro by Ariana Hargrave. Theme music for this podcast is provided by the laid-back and local Throckmorton Ukulele Band. You can hear more of their music on Facebook. Find more Newberry Tart episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our website is Newberry Tart. That's N E W B E R Y T A R T dot com.